how much longer are your guys in school? Today's the big oh, day. Yeah, yeah, I took Ollie, Ollie, one of Ollie, since I couldn't take him this morning, he had to be entrusted with bringing the present to yes. his teacher. But he's a curious man, so he's like, what's in this present? Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, it's a water bottle and some jam, two types of jam. And what did and he think? Like, and he was like, okay. And he starts swinging the bag around, and I was like, now, do you think she would like getting two things of jam and a water bottle or, or a what? Brad, bag of broken shards of glass <laughs> covered in jam? Yeah, it's so funny. I, I literally was just driving past um, school, and people were bringing their flowers and their yeah. things. And I was thinking, oh, remember that? Like, every year you're like, oh, geez, what the hell do I give the teacher? I noticed a weird thing this morning, reading in print. Yeah. The A section of the Washington Post has not a single story about Donald J. Trump. Can that be? (laughs) I couldn't figure out if this was like an artifact. I literally had to check the date on the top. I was like, is this an artifact from the past or the future? The Times today actually has two front page print uh, Trump stories. Excellent stories. They also have, though, apropos of what you're talking about, uh, an op-ed piece, but I think it's by David Brooks saying, mm-hmm. "I will not let Trump infiltrate my brain." Good luck. Uh, you know, yeah. it's been awful to see. It's kind of like the return of some kind of pandemic here. Don't you guys remember back to like that period right after? He left office and after the second impeachment and people were like, oh, yeah, we're done with that. And I, I remember like saying, like, I totally get why it is much better for your quality of life to pretend that Donald Trump is gone and banished. But you realize like he's actually not gone and banished. And I, I actually don't know where I come down on this issue. Right. Like maybe it is better just to like pretend for as long as you can pretend that he's not really Still I mean, there. When you see Berlusconi's um, right. lifespan, and you see that these there's a kind of character that's so alike, and they they just thrive in constant attention and never give up the power as well, long as my, they can. My, my favorite thing about the Berlusconi Obed, mm. by the way, was that he was super offended when people compared him to Trump. All right, here we go. So welcome to The Political Scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm joined by my colleagues Jane Mayer and Evan Osnos. Hey there, guys. Hey, Susan. Hi, Susan. All right. So now everybody knows what's in the indictment of former President Donald Trump, at least this federal indictment, which charges that he had multiple, really hundreds of classified documents about highly sensitive national security matters kept at home with him, stashed away in Mar-a-Lago. He showed some of these documents to people who were not authorized to see them. He's charged with illegally possessing 31 of them that have some of the nation's most classified nuclear secrets. He refused to give them back when subpoenaed for them. And now Republicans in Congress are furious, not at Donald Trump, but at the Justice Department, for charging him. In fact, with just a few exceptions, Republicans are defending Trump and attacking the Justice Department and the FBI for, quote, trying to jail a political opponent. Let's start with listening to a bit of Trump's speech after he was arraigned and arrested in Florida. He attacked prosecutor Jack Smith, Raving lunatic, I believe, was one of the phrases he used, although I might note that he also called the Manhattan DA, who earlier charged him the exact same thing. (laughs) It's an oldie but a goodie. He likes that. Absolutely. Donald Trump, of course, called it political persecution. 
Then again, he believes he's been persecuted for many, many years. What really caught my ear, though, was what he said at the very end of his speech, which I think is a significant escalation in his rhetoric. Let's take a listen. I will appoint a real special prosecutor to go after the most corrupt president in the history of the United States of America, Joe Biden, and the entire Biden crime family. Name a special prosecutor. And all others involved with the destruction of our elections, our borders, and our country itself. They're destroying our country. And when I'm reelected and we will get reelected, we have no choice. We're not going to have a country anymore. I will totally obliterate the deep state. We will obliterate the deep state. And we know who they are. I know exactly who they are. They want to take away my freedom because I will never let them take away your freedom. It's very simple. All right. Well, Evan, what do you make of this promise that Donald Trump has now made to name a special prosecutor to, quote, obliterate the deep state? I feel like this is obviously unlike any rhetoric we've ever seen from a leading candidate for president before, even arguably from Donald Trump himself. He claims the Justice Department is being weaponized against him, and yet he literally explicitly now is running on the promise to weaponize the Justice Department. Yeah, I have to tell you, this is one of those moments where it's tempting almost at the outset to just say, you know, this is more of his hyperventilating. We've heard this kind of language before. But no, you have to stop and just acknowledge that this is eliminationist rhetoric. He is talking about obliterating the deep state, about essentially pulling out the FBI and the Justice Department as we know it at root and branch. I mean, that is not hyperbole the way I'm describing it here. There is a way in which, and this really gets also into the politics, that he has managed to turn this election, not only in his own words, but also in the words of his competitors, into a war against the Justice Department and the system of law enforcement and criminal justice. That is a profound shift from even where we were uh, a few months ago. And, and I think we have to sort of pause and recognize that this is this is a new phase. Yeah, Evan, I think that's really important, Jane. I, I've also noticed this uh, almost apocalyptic rhetoric coming from Trump, that it's a real escalation. For the last few months, he's been talking about 2024 as the, quote, final battle uh, and, you know, it suggests that people, you know, really need to react in some way that goes above and beyond just just normal politics. But there's been a years long effort, hasn't there, on the part of Republicans and especially on the part of Donald Trump to undermine and go after the Justice Department even before these cases were brought. You know, you you want to say, well, this is just talk, but it is very dangerous talk. And I actually was reminded of an interview I once did with, with a professor at Princeton, Kim Lane Shepley, who um, studies the slide of democracies into authoritarian states. And her specialty is Orban in Hungary. And one of the first things she points out that Orban did was to attack the independence of the justice system. It's rule number one in authoritarian takeovers that you have to take over the independent justice system. And and, and we're seeing this as a promise from Trump at this point. Yeah, I think one of the things, right, is that there have been so many norms shattered by Donald Trump. Sometimes we can uh, fail to notice when yet another one is happening. But I feel like 
this week marked kind of a, another Rubicon of many that we've crossed in that uh, there's an explicit vow here, not only to appoint a special prosecutor to go against your opponent, but also uh, this this notion that the basic concept of independence of the Justice Department that has more or less been consensus among Democrats and Republicans since Watergate and since Richard Nixon. Now you have Donald Trump. And by the way, another leading contender, uh, Ron DeSantis, he said that he would fire the FBI director on day one. Here's the quote. You will have a new FBI director. And they are all now increasingly on the record as saying, we don't want to have uh, an independent Justice Department. It's an arm of the president. And it goes with this very expansive view of the powerful executive. Uh, Evan, yeah. what are the implications of that? I mean, that that, that would revise uh, many aspects of, of Washington as we know it. it. It really is dramatic. You now have a party and it's not just one man. You now have a party that has adopted as an organizing principle the idea that it is in a kind of mortal combat with the FBI and the DOJ. I mean, there was a, a Republican convention in Georgia the other day, and the delegates there were wearing T-shirts with slogans like defund the FBI, and these colors don't run. They reload. Now, you might say, OK, that's just kind of standard sort of NRA merch. Actually, this is a Republican convention, a political convention in which they are putting themselves in explicit opposition to these agencies. And I think it's important to note it's not just Trump. Take, for example, people like Nikki Haley, Mike Pence. These are two of the candidates that in theory are supposed to be kind of closer to the moderate wing of this party. You now had both of them in the last week coalescing around this line. It was almost kind of they almost said exactly the same thing. They both said in one form or another, two things can be true at once. Here I'm quoting Pence. He said, number one, these are serious charges against Trump. He says, uh, but it doesn't change the fact that tens of millions of Americans have a sense of a two-tiered system of justice. Haley said almost exactly the same thing. That's becoming the new mantra is to say, Trump may have crossed the line here, but it's the Justice Department, dear voter, that is the real enemy. I mean, I, it should go without saying, but this is, of course, a lie. Yes. <laughs> that yes. Um, I mean, yes. and, and of attorney generals, I have to say Merrick Garland is so completely fastidious about not being political that there are a number of Democrats who are furious <laughs> with right. him for not being more political, in fact. This is a very apolitical Justice Department, and and very purposefully so. And Biden makes a huge point of always saying, I, I, I do not speak to Merrick Garland about cases, which is the same thing that Obama said, even though he and Eric Holder were very good friends. They did not speak about specific cases. It's, it's considered just a core corruption of democracy to use the Justice Department for personal political gain. Well, it, you know, except that you've had years of... Trump and his allies, uh, including, we can talk about this, the the House Republicans up on Capitol Hill, almost laying the groundwork for this moment and, you know, seeding the lack of trust. They say, well, I don't know what you guys are talking about, the independence of the uh, judicial system. It looks to me like a banana republic. It looks to me like when you threaten to put your leading political opponent in jail, that that's the evidence of the weaponization of federal law enforcement, which is a term used by uh, Ron DeSantis in his tweet 
after the indictment this week. I mean, can we just say for one second, Ron DeSantis, a graduate of Harvard Law School. I mean, Harvard Law School should be calling up and saying, send the diploma back. I mean, (laughs) he knows better. Uh, Why were they going after this as a theme for years? Uh, what does it tell you about today's Republican Party, Evan? You know, what's what's interesting is if you look into the organizations that traditionally were the kind of uh, idea shops, places like the Heritage Foundation, Kevin Roberts, current president of the Heritage Foundation, says the FBI has become a political weapon for the ruling elite rather than an impartial law enforcement agency. Just stop and put that in contrast to, to the sort of law and order rhetoric that was the defining characteristic of the Republican Party from Richard Nixon on. I mean, that is a kind of a, a profound change in not just what's being set out on the stump, but what's happening in the Washington infrastructure of the party. I mean, there are some people, and you guys will know these names, people like Jeffrey Clark, Russell Vogt, some of these Trump kind of ideologists who are now imagining what a future might look like under a Trump presidency. I, I mean, I don't actually know much about Russell Vogt. Susan, you may have a sense of who this guy is, but what is it like? What is he doing? What is he? Who is he? Well, I think you're right about this point of creating almost an intellectual infrastructure around this assault on uh, uh, the Justice Department, the FBI. For a certain group of, you know, far-right conservative ideologues, this has been a longtime cause for them. Uh, Russell Vogt, interestingly, was the um, First of all, he was a key political actor in Washington at, at Heritage Action. Then he went into the Trump administration, and he ultimately became the director of the Office of Management and Budget. He's working alongside Jeffrey Clark, who is a really interesting character in the oh, yeah, annals of name. Donald mm-hmm. Trump lore, because Jeffrey Clark was a, an obscure Justice Department official who was connected to Donald Trump after the 2020 election via a congressman who now is the head of the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, Scott Perry from Pennsylvania. And Jeffrey Clark basically raised his hand to Donald Trump and said, yeah, I'll help you. I'll help you overturn the results of the 2020 election. And it was only Trump wanted to actually install him as acting attorney general after Bill Barr. Remember, Bill Barr, even the conservative Bill Barr said, this is too much for me. And he said, no way, I'm not going to go along with this. And he actually left the administration in December of 2020. And it was then that this guy, Jeffrey Clark, is connected to Donald Trump and only basically the threat of a mass resignation of the other existing senior Trump officials at the Justice Department stopped Donald Trump in that crucial meeting before January 6th at the White House. That was what stopped him ultimately from installing Jeffrey Clark. Well, now Clark is one of the key people who is promoting this idea that you would have basically a completely different completely politicized approach to the Justice Department in a second term. Jane, what does that tell you? And also, what kind of interests in the Republican Party? Like, who is funding this? Like, why why would this become uh, an aspect of conservative ideology? Isn't there, I mean, shouldn't it be conservative to have an independent and strong Justice Department? What makes it antithetical to uh, these interests who are bankrolling the Republican Party? Well, I mean, what you have, I mean, I think it's worth taking, stepping back and taking a look at where these people are coming from. There is a new organization that was founded a couple of years ago in Washington called the Conservative Partnership Institute. It's getting 
an incredible amount of money. It's a 501c3, which means it's supposed to be a charity, not a political group, explicitly not a political group. It's, you mean like it's supposed to be like a soup kitchen? <laughs> yeah, it is supposed to be. It is a soup kitchen for for Donald Trump, <laughs> oh, actually. Um, and it's actually gotten a million dollars from Donald Trump's um, super PAC at one point. It, it's got revenues of $45 million. It's buying up real estate on Capitol Hill. They have bought nine buildings for $45 million, just two blocks east of the Capitol, in what they're calling Patriots Row. It's a hub of radical Trumpism within the Washington Capitol area. Um, and its its funding is secretive because it is a charity. So if you, charitable donations are tax-deductible and secret. Um, but it's run in part by Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to Trump. And um, it, Jeffrey Clark is there. It is a place that is basically aiding Trump's retaking of power. It's laying the groundwork. It's writing the position papers. The particular center that Jeffrey Clark comes out of and Russell Voigt comes out of is called the Center for American Renewal. People should go look it up. It's shocking what they're advocating. And they are basically drawing up blueprints for what looks like a a much more radical and authoritarian second term for Trump if he could ever get into power. up, we'll talk more about the future of the Republican Party and its campaign against the weaponization, quote unquote, of the Justice Department. You know, Evan, it's interesting, too, because on Capitol Hill, you also have kind of the the most fervent pro-Trump voices who also have embraced this attack on uh, the independence of the Justice Department and criticizing uh, actually the Trump appointee to head the FBI, Chris Wray. That's one of the core causes of like Jim Jordan, who is now uh, the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee uh, and, of course, also a leader of uh, the far-right Freedom Caucus. What's the the synergy there between the you know the kind of rebel right faction in the House of Representatives and why this is one of their causes? Well, in some ways, you see that they are in the position of holding more power than they might have traditionally in a, in a let's call it a regular House of Representatives. I mean, you have a very weak speaker. You have the opportunity for them to be able to challenge and contain and constrain and shape really the whole capacity of the House of Representatives to work. I mean, you just saw this the other day where you had about a dozen of these conservative hardliners who uh, basically brought the House of Representatives to a halt. They did it by voting down what's called a rule, which for the first time they've done this in two decades. And this is a big deal because actually there was, there was a quote that caught my eye. One of them said, tradition be damned. We have to change the way this town works. He's talking about his own party leadership. But this is, again, Russell Vogt came up with the strategy here. He's, he's in a so-called you know charity on Capitol Hill and he's telling the Freedom Caucus what to do. And you know what, what the through line here is because if you go back and you think Russell Vogt and Jeffrey Clark, Jeffrey Clark was identified during the January 6th hearings as one of the way they put it as one of the essentially the coup plotters, the people who were seeking a coup to undermine the election. What we're seeing today is the development of a kind of institutionalized politics of the permanent coup, where you have now a coup against their own 
their own Speaker of the House, preventing him from being able to get anything done. That's now become the sort of new modus operandi for this party. I mean, I think that's important, Evan. You know, I mean, look, this is not a new dynamic, right? Revolutions eat their own. Uh, Well, (laughs) That's one of our rules on this show. Exactly. And the the Trump revolution was always going to uh, be almost impossible for Kevin McCarthy to manage. I I was interested, Jane, that uh, the Republican rebels chose this course of uh, taking down the rule. They created chaos. They essentially stopped the House of Representatives for for working for days. They had to actually send the House home. They couldn't get any voting done. But then they backed off. It was a message, right? It was like a sort of a shot across the bow. There's now talk that we survived, you know, kind of the threat of the budget crisis with this budget deal, but that we might now have a new crisis over a government shutdown if these rebels refuse to go along with the federal spending bills when they're passed this fall. I mean, I think it's almost inevitable. I mean, these they this was just a shot across the bow. They have power over McCarthy, and they're, they're certainly going... I, I would be shocked if they don't bring the government to a shutdown at this point. Um, this business of taking on their own is very much what we were talking about the Heritage Foundation, what kind of swept through the Heritage Foundation. Heritage Action was a uh, sort of a political action committee that went after moderate Republicans, not just after Democrats. And that was very controversial. And this is what we're seeing here. It's a purging and an attacking of their own for not being radical enough. It's radicalizing the party. And the radicals have a lot of power on the Hill. I mean, I have to say one other thing that I think is fascinating about Russell Vogt, if you take a look at his biography, he is very um, explicitly religious. Hmm. Um, and, and, And the Center for American Renewal talks about bringing America back to its religious Christian roots. Um, this is a kind of Christian nationalism that's coming out of this group. This also gives you a clue as to where the money's coming from, though, right. which yes. is there are countless numbers of small donors who share those beliefs, who are pouring money in. And actually, the, the when, when Trump goes, you know, really hot with the rhetoric like this, it's a great moneymaker. This is, as much as anything, a money-making gambit. Right now, it's more existential for Trump because what he's trying to do is delegitimize the people who may actually convict him. But there is money flowing in because of this fight. Speaking of conviction, I do think we have to talk about, you know, this other, let's just say, elephant in the room, uh, which is the fact that the Republican Party seems to be charging full speed ahead uh, right along there with Donald Trump. And and rather than it hindering or hurting the Trump candidacy, you know, certainly the polls, the very timid response from virtually all of his competitors, so-called competitors in the Republican presidential race, Evan, they almost all seem to suggest that uh, the politics of this indictment uh, look good for Donald Trump in the Republican Party, even while they look bad for Donald Trump in terms of actually winning a general election. Yeah, so far his opponents have kind of assembled themselves into this cheerleading chorus where they basically stand by and say, yes, we echo your victimhood. I mean, there's just these little movements around the edges. You see Asa Hutchinson, by the way, former governor of Arkansas, who came out and remains the only one to say Donald Trump has disqualified himself from public Well, Christie. Christie's saying versions of that, but Christie's doing it in his own Christie way, which is that he's making it 
it also very much about him. And I want to point out he is an imperfect messenger on this. You because, hate him. No, I do not. I don't hate anybody. We are a sunny, inclusive bunch here. But he's a guy who spent years, years defending not just Donald Trump's behavior but his moral character and then also preparing him for re-election in 2020 by prepping him for debate. So Chris Christie has a tall mountain to climb when it comes to credibility on actually seeking to Well, and by the way, to, to the point about it all being about Chris Christie, it actually was that debate prep in 2020, we might add, that it caused the final break between Donald Trump and Chris Christie because Christie got uh, COVID during those (laughs) prep sessions at the White House in the fall of 2020, and it nearly killed him. And he was furious with Donald Trump for... What do you think? I mean, how often do you have a presidential election in which two of the top contenders, in this case Pence and Christie, both nearly got killed by... The other, the front runner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't heard people uh, sum it up quite that way. But actually, let's play this this really interesting clip from Chris Christie, who actually did attack Trump at a CNN town hall this week. And let me ask you a question. What exactly was he doing with them? Did someone remind him he's not the president anymore? You don't need these things anymore. This is vanity run amok, Anderson. Run amok. Ego run amok. And he is now going to put this country... Through this, when we didn't have to go through it, everyone's blaming the prosecutors. He did it. It's his conduct. You know him very well. Yes. Why do you think he did it? I mean, he couldn't, he cannot live with the fact that he lost to Joe Biden. He can't live with it. I got to say, from everybody who really knows Trump well, he, it seems like he's completely on the money. I mean, if you listen to Mary Trump, the niece of Donald Trump, or if you talk to Michael Cohen, they say that from the time Trump was a little boy, his father said, losers are the lowest order of life. He had to win, and he cannot accept and it. And this is, this is actually where Christie has hit on something important. He came up with this. Uh, it's not the most sophisticated rhetorical flourish, but it's an effective one where he says Donald Trump is a loser, loser, loser. That's the only thing that actually is going to sort of get into the Donald Trump uh, It'll armor. make him crazy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. but I have to say, guys, like, you listen to that. Why is it so hard for other Republicans who are allegedly running against Donald Trump to say what is blindingly obvious, which is that he did this. Nobody made him take these documents. Nobody made him refuse to give them back once they were subpoenaed from him. This is why can't they just say, yes, of course, Donald Trump shouldn't do this. Let's contrast, in fact, what we just heard from Chris Christie from Nikki Haley, who I believe has actually had three different positions already on the indictment. If this indictment is true, if what it says is actually the case, President Trump was incredibly reckless with our national security. More than that, I'm a military spouse. My husband's about to deploy this weekend. This puts all of our military men and women in danger. If you are going to talk about what our military is capable of or how we would go about invading or doing something with one of our enemies. And if that's the case, it's in, it's reckless, it's frustrating, and um, it causes problems. Okay, so, and um, it causes problems. Problems. Not exactly. <laughs> That's what uh, Churchill said, I think, right? Uh, uh, no. So why is it so hard uh, for these candidates? What are the politics 
do you think it's behind? Just, I, I don't think it's hard to figure out. It's self-interest. Yeah. They, they, you know, they think that's where the voters are. And so long as the, the base is there and they need the base to win in a primary, they're going to hang in there. And the same for if you really take a look at the Conservative Partnership Institute and these organizations in Washington that are pumping up Trump. A, they're making money on it, and B, many of the people who work there are under investigation themselves for the, for some of the Trump-related crimes, um, alleged crimes. It's self-interest. It's a self-interested, self-protective movement. I just, yeah, I think in the end, it's just this kind of cowardly coalition where they basically say to themselves, we don't know exactly what percentage of the voters out there are loyal to Trump to the end, but we're not going to take any risk by standing for principle because... Because it, Liz Cheney. We've yeah. seen what happens when you do. The cowardly coalition. Uh, I like it might that. Be, it might be the ep- <laughs> epitaph on all of their <laughs> presidential campaigns. I mean, you look at the numbers and Trump is is well over 50 percent now in, in many of the national polls in this primary. It's hard to imagine, given that uh, a scenario, there is not a lot of precedent to suggest that someone with that strong of a lead this early on would actually lose the Republican nomination. Uh, I think we should conclude, though, on this note of, you know, humility. We don't know what we don't know. It's certainly possible that Republican voters look at the prospect of a nominee who might actually end up in jail and say, we just can't go for it. So I want to ask each of you, maybe it's just a, a thought exercise given our cowardly coalition can you even imagine any of this this group actually winning? Let's just say that Donald Trump's campaign collapses, uh, he, he is thrown in jail, something happens. Who among all of this group of people, or maybe it's, it's someone who's not even running, could you actually see getting the nomination in 2024 in that scenario, Evan and Jean? Look, it is absolutely true that if you go back through history, you just cannot pretend that this is not a process that could have radical changes between now and the end of the process. Yeah, I was talking to my dear dad who has been through a number of presidential elections in his lifetime. He says, I find it inconceivable that we're going to get to November of next year and have these two people at the top of the tickets, uh, both Trump and Biden. He says there's just too many variables. And I, you know, in some ways that is what history suggests. Now, who on the Republican side could step into this? At this point, obviously, Ron DeSantis is the person who has that greatest possibility. Um, But he's a cold fish, you know, to use a technical term. Look, the guy (laughs) is just not Ron DeSantis does not have that charisma, that thing. And we all know it when we see it. And I'm not sure that people in the Republican Party are ultimately going to be that excited about this game. All right. So who's it going to be then? I think it's going to be Ron DeSantis, and I don't think he's going to be a particularly strong candidate. Jane, DeSantis, somebody else? Uh, I would I would say DeSantis just because, first of all, it's not a very strong field here. And, you know, I, I share Evan's sense of DeSantis from everything I've read. I haven't met him Um but we had a fantastic profile of him by Dexter Filkins in the magazine that in which his own um, teammates at Yale on the uh, baseball team described him in the in one word, which was he's a dick. Um, and so not every um, president has been lovable. I mean, Richard Nixon did get elected and DeSantis got overwhelmingly reelected in a state that is powerful and he's doing things there that some people really like that are very frightening to other people. I, I, I see him as, as the most likely of the second tier. 
Well, it's uh, it's the prerogative of the moderator to ask the questions and not be forced to no, answer them. Come on, Susan. Susan. But I will say, I will no say that uh, I'm going to disagree with you guys just for the sake of disagreeing. Tim for, Scott? Well, first of all, no, absolutely not. Um, first of <laughs> all, I, Haley? I would say that it seems to me that DeSantis is actually more like the kinds of frontrunners who've collapsed before and people like Jeb Bush with his $100 million uh, back in uh, 2015 and 2016 so as an reveal, example. what's Susan? Who's, who are you picking? You know, I, so uh, what I'm She's picking is Trump. Trump. Yeah, She's I'm going Trump. Trump. Oh, well, here, here, here listen, I think actually, you know, and we've been critical of her in this conversation and other conversations. Nikki Haley, it strikes me, is kind of the profile of somebody who could possibly slide through in a scenario where they were at the last minute looking for somebody. She has shown herself, first of all, extremely willing to be completely ideologically malleable, which means that she's willing to adopt whatever position she thinks is necessary at the moment. She worked for Donald Trump. She's been modestly critical of him, but then not extremely so. She's certainly not a Chris Christie, who I think would be un- unacceptable to the kind of Trump-obsessed Republican I don't know. electorate. I mean, the thing is, the Southern Baptists just took a position saying that women can't even be preachers. The Christian right is such a big part of the Republican Party. I don't know that they're really ready for a woman to run and be in the White House. Well, again, I, you know, agreed on on all fronts. So I say not DeSantis, which means, I guess, <coughs> Nikki Haley. So what you're saying is um, that we started this conversation today talking a bit about Berlusconi, and the scenario <laughs> you're describing is something even more Baroque than the most wild Italian Correct. political scenario. He may get off in Miami, though. Would that judge? We'll, we'll, we will wait and see. But I did like the Drudge <laughs> headline. There was a Drudge headline that said, the White House or jail? <laughs> the White House or, or jail. jail? Guys, this has been The Political Scene. I'm Susan Glasser. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia and Michael May. And editing help from Catherine Winter. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.